Well, great to see you all here um, tonight. And uh, yes, as we've been saying, this is our last session, session eight on church history. So it's been a real privilege and a pleasure um, to be welcoming you all every Monday night. And uh, I mean, for a course like this, you know, church history, the minute you mention it to a lot of people that you think um, who's going to be vaguely interested. So it's very encouraging to uh, to have you here and to see the interest levels and questions indeed that I get afterwards and so on. So that is great. And uh, Hope you have found this helpful, even if it's been 90 miles an hour. Just a reminder again as well that all of these sessions are put on very quickly, actually. Um, Rosie's brilliant at uh, putting these up on YouTube and um, our website as well. So literally the next day you'll find these up. So if you found it too fast going, um, in fact, I was listening this morning to a couple of weeks ago and I thought, how do I get away with speaking so fast? But uh, that's the way it is. There's a lot to cover and hopefully you can go over the, uh, old ground as well. So where do we start now? We're up to the 20th century. So a lot of the things that we mentioned tonight will seem familiar as we bring church history to an end. When we say as we bring it to an end, church history is ongoing. We're part of it. As someone once said, we are Acts 29. As you know, the book of Acts has 28 chapters, but it's an unfinished work. Paul ends up in Rome at the end of Acts. And the whole idea is that uh, there's no closure to that book because the church keeps going. The church keeps spreading the name of Jesus around the world. And it's your and my job to do it. And I guess the best legacy of any SGT would be if we were challenged more and more in our own hearts and in our own lives and through our own churches to spread the name of Jesus as far and wide as we can. But that, of course, begins in our own family homes, begins in our own communities before we think about um, a lost world. Anyway, we're going to start tonight. Um, I mean, I, I've entitled it the, top, the Age of Ideologies, 1914 to the present. So uh, a typically Irish start will begin before 1914. Um, looking back to 1906 in particular, because something happened that's been massively important for the last 120 years of, uh, of the church. And that's the rise of Pentecostalism. Now, there's a bit of a build up to the rise of Pentecostalism. You may remember last week we were thinking about the fact that towards the end of the 1800s, the church had become quite cerebral, quite dry, um, in a sense, in response to the liberalism of the age that had doubted and questioned the Bible. People wanted to return to sound doctrine, but often in doing so, um, a lot of churches just taught sound doctrine without applying it or illustrating it or, or, or thinking about lively communication, which we need more and more. Um, and so a lot of churches were dry and listless. Um, and you'll remember we were thinking of the Keswick Convention last, last week, where um, Keswick was known for this theology of there's a crisis moment in your salvation where you kind of move from being this kind of dull, dry Christian to being one who is um, on a new level, on a fresh level with the Holy Spirit. And that was very attractive to this generation, that you could have a personal experience of God and whatever critiques we may have of the Keswick movement, um, this whole idea about experiencing God personally, experiencing his power in our lives is so key to Christianity. It's understanding the right way to take and the right way to understand these experiences. Never focus purely on experience at the expense of scripture. At the same time, never read scripture just as a dry, dull textbook from the past. We believe in a living God who's speaking today through his word and who can move today in the lives of men and women in powerful ways. As A.W. Tozer said, anything God has ever done, he can do today. And that was certainly true of 1906 in what we call the Azusa Street Revival. 
just to give a bit of a build up to that, um, I've mentioned before there was a, a revival in 1904 in Wales. And I was actually in Cardiff as a pastor in 2004 when they were celebrating 100 years of the Welsh revival. So I had to do a lot of deep studies about it. The Welsh revival began in about 1902 when a group of older folks were mourning the fact that young people were leaving the Welsh chapels. They got together to pray in what were called cottage prayer meetings, which were pretty dull to begin with. Just a bunch of old folks um, praying dryly. Um, a lot of quiet moments and so on, but these prayer meetings developed a fire of their own over a couple of years, and these, these older folks just didn't stop. They kept going. They persevered, and that eventually led to a fire, which we call a spiritual fire, which we call the Welsh Revival 1904, and between 1904 and 1905, there are 100,000 Welsh people converted, largely through um, an untrained son of a miner called Evan Roberts, untrained in a biblical sense, no biblical theology degree at all, but he was hungry for God and he had dramatic experiences of the Holy Spirit of God. And for a year, he went around the whole of Wales preaching with unusual rapt response from people. The whole culture changed and, um, you know, police, um, police centers were closed and often police officers became part of church choirs because there was no crime. The crime rate fell. The spirit moved on an entire culture in a glorious way in 1904 Welsh Revival. In fact, um, there was a great hymn that came out of the Welsh Revival. What is the hymn now? The minute I want to think about it, I'll forget it. Um, Here is love vast as the ocean, which we have now in an English translation, but it was originally written in Welsh and was a product actually of one of these revival nights. So here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. And the, the Welsh Revival was known as much as, of the, as the singing revival as it was of the preaching revival. But Wales had a dramatic impact. You're thinking 1905 now. And uh, I could go through the whole story of how Welsh revival moved to India and Korea and parts of China, all experienced similar revival experiences. And then in 1906, it kind of all came to a head in Azusa Street, Los Angeles. And in this famous revival, which is which was the birthplace of Pentecostalism, there was a, a multiracial group who were experiencing the gift of tongues. They were speaking in tongues together. There was evidence of healings happening and unusual manifestations of the power of God. And it was particularly important that it was a multiracial group because there were racial tensions in Los Angeles, as there have been in American history and, of course, outside America as well in lots of different places. But the fact that these were groups from different races and cultures coming together, all experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, made the revival even more significant. It made the surrounding culture stand up and take notice. And, and lots of incredible things were happening from this Azusa Street base. And of course, as often happens in revival, there were folks that traveled to Los Angeles to kind of catch the fire. And to some extent, in a mysterious way, they were able to do that. And, and the, the tracing of revival then went from Azusa Street and people took this revival all across the world. And really, that has been the birthplace of Pentecostalism. One of the great um, tragedies that people would that the Welsh people would say is that the the, the 1904 Welsh revival seemed to stop after Evan Roberts. That was a year's worth of incredible happenings. And then Wales went back to its old ways again. But when you look at the, the full impact of that revival period to India, Korea and so on, and then to Pentecostalism, the 1906 Azusa Street revival, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's still being, its power is still being felt today all across the world. 
Pentecostals have become the largest single Protestant denomination. Point B here says Pentecostalism now accounts for 250 million Christians around the globe. Now, this is a figure from a few years ago. That figure will have increased by now. Just extraordinary the impact that Pentecostalism has made. The main denomination of Pentecostalism is the AOG, Assemblies of God. There's a big Assemblies of God church in Aberdeen, which some of you will know, King's Church. And uh, it became, within the AOG, the biggest movement. So it became the single largest Protestant denomination, the Assemblies of God. And it began in 1914, just eight years after Azusa Street. And of course, Pentecostal beliefs exist outside specifically Pentecostal churches. You'll have Pentecostal beliefs all over the place. There'll be some Pentecostals who would come to Deeside, for example, um, and lots of different Pentecostal influences in Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, and so on. So it really has had a very wide influence. Um, classical Pentecostalism, if I could put it that way, because it's become a very, very wide blanket, and some Pentecostalism has probably gone off the rails a little bit, but classic Pentecostalism is evangelical. So there's no contradiction between evangelical and, and Pentecostal. Um, Pentecostals believe in the inerrancy of scripture, that the Bible is the word of God. They would believe in core reformation doctrines like justification by faith and so on. So um, Pentecostalism is an orthodox Christian movement seeking to bring men and women into the kingdom of God. And the majority of Southern Hemisphere Christianity in particular is Pentecostal. So large swathes of Africa, South America, China increasingly um, would be all Pentecostal. Um, now, of course, as with every other Christian movement, there have been areas of controversy that have infiltrated Pentecostalism, um, particularly the health and wealth movement. Now, that's not specific only to Pentecostalism. Health and wealth movement has affected lots of churches, particularly in poorer parts of the world. And the whole idea behind the health and wealth movement is that, you know, if you're a faithful believer, you will be healthy and wealthy. You give to God and he will give back more financially. Now, I would say scripture teaches if you give to God, he will give back. He will never you will never be found wanting if you give to God. But that doesn't necessarily mean financial. That doesn't necessarily mean health wise. And of course, um, to take this health and wealth gospel and present it to some very faithful believers today who are suffering, maybe suffering depression, maybe they get cancer like everybody else does. Um, and often their lives are, are just weighed down with all kinds of stresses and anxieties. You can be a faithful full believer and that happen as well. There's not a good theology of suffering within the health and wealth movement. Um, but we found some of this. My, my parents were missionaries in Ethiopia. And you could understand um, uh, new Ethiopian believers um, who were very, very poor and were being told, you know, Jesus Christ will transform your life. And then they listened to something like God TV or some um, major Pentecostal revival kind of preacher saying, you know, you just trust God and he will make you wealthy. And you can understand what an attractive message that is. And there are lots of cases in, in African churches in particular where, you know, the congregation, a very poor congregation will be cheering their pastor on because their pastor has driven into the church car park in a Mercedes. You know, that's a sign of wealth. That's a sign of God's blessing. And sometimes it has to be said that pastors love, love the adulation of that. And they love the fact that their congregations want them to be wealthy as a kind of figurehead of the church. And of course, you can understand how a situation like that leads to all kinds of problems. 
And a lot of the health and wealth movement is built on a wrong understanding of the reward system in the Bible. There are rewards expressed in the New Testament and the Old Testament, but the rewards are very different between the two Testaments. To give you an example, you'll remember from the Ten Commandments, um, um, you know, obey the Ten Commandments so that it will go well with you and that you may live long on the earth. This was the honor your father and mother commandment specifically. If you honor your father and mother, it will go well with you physically in this life and you will live long on the earth. Now, back in books like Exodus, there was a very, um, very little idea of the afterlife and rewards in the afterlife. All rewards were considered earthly. So you can understand believers taking those Old Testament scriptures out of context and saying, well, if you're a faithful believer, you will be rewarded today through a nicer house, um, better insurance policies, um, better employment and uh, better health. So it's often called, you know, name it and claim it. You know, I'm a faithful Christian. I'm going to name the faithfulness of God. I'm going to claim his financial and um, uh, health advantages on my life. I'm going to claim those for myself. I have power now um, to unleash the blessings of God from heaven into my life. That's kind of how health and wealth works. And uh, we just need to reject it as um, as false teaching, because that's exactly what it is. And it's leading a lot of poorer Christians into, well, into dissatisfaction because they're told, you know, Christ's going to make me healthier and wealthier. And then when it doesn't happen, you're saying, well, I mustn't be a faithful Christian. And then you get into disillusionment. So we need to be very wary of that. Um, the whole idea of health and wealth Christianity and be very wary, should I say here controversially, on what we see passing as biblical preaching on television. When I was in America, um, preaching was often prime time, but not all the preaching was biblical. You had a lot of health and wealth preaching. You had a lot of, how should I put it, spiritual victory kind of preaching, which made you feel very uncomfortable. Um, now, there was some very solid biblical teaching as well there, and it was a mixed bag. But a lot of Christians have been led down this very attractive health and wealth line and uh, are threatening to have their faith shipwrecked and one of the big challenges of our day actually is getting good bible teaching out to all the corners of the world where you know there are lots of um towns and um villages in africa in particular south america as well where there's barely any bible in sight and so the pastor who's leading the church is leading without a bible in hand and he's never been taught how to preach the scriptures so he'll just watch the television he'll see how the television preachers do it and copy it for the crowd and the big challenge is, can we get these pastors and teachers in poorer parts of the world taught correctly in scriptures, taught how to teach the Bible passage by passage, book by book, what we call expository preaching, which would bring an end to some of this um, health and wealth prosperity stuff, because even the life of Paul hugely challenges health and wealth. You know, Paul gave himself completely to Christ. You couldn't find a more devoted man. I worked harder than all of them, he says. And yet he talks about his the famine situation, the shipwreck. In fact, his famous phrase in Philippians 4, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That verse follows on from Paul saying, I have known what it's like to have plenty and I've known what it's like to have little. And of course, he spends half his time in a prison cell. That's where half the New Testament is written from a prison cell where there's certainly no health and wealth and prosperity. In fact, 11 out of the 12 of Jesus' original apostles were martyred for their faith. And illness is prevalent, you know, um, Paul saying, I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. 
And you're kind of thinking, well, hang on a second. Uh, if Paul was able to heal so many people and in Ephesus, even those people who touched his handkerchief were able to be healed, why could Paul not heal Trophimus? But for some reason, healing was not on tap. There were certain situations and certain areas where God's power was more manifest than others. So Paul leaves Trophimus sick in Miletus. So it's not a carte blanche offer that, you know, if you're living this victorious Christian life, um, you'll be wealthy, you'll be healthy, and you'll be able to do miracles and all of that kind of stuff. Now, of course, we also want to believe in the power of God, that God can do anything at any time, any place, anywhere. And the opposite reaction, the kind of very conservative reaction is, look, I don't like all of this Holy Spirit power talk. That makes me feel uncomfortable. I want to bunker down into my safe little Christianity where I have very low expectations of God. And the truth needs to be somewhere in between. I want to have sky high expectations of God who can do anything, who can do more than all we ask or imagine. Ephesians 3 says he can do it all. He can do it now while also trusting in God's wisdom that God will respond to our prayers according to his will. We need wisdom. Um, God is, is moving his kingdom forward in different ways in different places. The way he's working in the West is different to the East and it's different to the South. His strategy is different in different places. So we need to be aware of a wise God not always giving us what we want when we want it, but giving us what he knows is good for us. Sometimes that'll be miracles. Sometimes that'll be healing. Sometimes that'll be um, new employment opportunities. Sometimes that'll mean increasing in wealth. It's not that God can't do these things. It's wonderful when he does, and we want to praise him when he does that. But there's no guarantee that faithful Christianity will lead to health and wealth. The reason why I'm you know, really pushing that point home is because this is the, you know, I was told a few weeks ago by a fellow who trains preachers in both South America and Africa, this is the single biggest problem he comes across, the health and wealth idea. And he's got to open Bible to people and say, look, this is not what the Bible teaches. What television says the Bible teaches is different to what scripture actually teaches. Let's, let's, let's take you to the Bible. And as somebody once said, the church in the global south is a mile wide. There are thousands of Christians entering all the time, but it's about an inch deep. It needs deeper teaching so that false doctrines like the health and wealth um, idea will be, uh, will be set aside and people will have a good theology of suffering as we all need. I've said here point two, um, in classic Pentecostalism, tongues are seen as the definitive sign of baptism in the spirit. You can understand where that idea come from. 1906, Azusa Street, tongues was clearly there. This was clearly a work of God. I don't think there's any denying that. There were clearly miracles involved. The question is, that experience of tongues, that experience of the miracles, was that normative now? Was that, you know, God saying every church everywhere needs to experience the gift of tongues or else they're not in the Holy Spirit? And Pentecostals historically would have said um, that tongues is the sign of having the Holy Spirit. So if you didn't speak in tongues, then you had to doubt whether you had or you certainly needed a new experience of the Spirit to be a proper mature Christian who could speak in tongues. Now, I've never spoken in tongues in my life, nor has Billy Graham um, nor is John Stott, some of the great leaders of the faith. So it's interesting that the AOG, the, the main um, part of the of Pentecostal denomination, has distanced itself from that historic position. Um, and you remember Paul saying in his diatribe to the Corinthians, when the Corinthians were loving their more dramatic manifestation gifts like tongues, like miracles, like healing, there were folks that had those gifts in this very gifted church and they were arrogant. They were considering themselves superior to others who didn't have these gifts, you know, two-tier Christianity. 
And Paul says in that, as he's saying, look, love must dominate in these things. Your gifts are not for yourself. They're for the wider church. And, and he also says, do all speak in tongues. Different gifts are given to different people. And uh, that certainly necessitates the fact that everybody doesn't speak in tongues. So loads of Christians, the majority of Christians do not speak in tongues and probably will never speak in tongues. Does that mean they're second class Christians? I think that's a very dangerous place to go. And I think a lot of Pentecostalism has pulled back from that. Allied to that, of course, is the charismatic movement that sprang up kind of late 60s, early 70s. Um, a key exponent, proponent of that was this man called John Wimber, a wonderful man of God. Um, he was a, um, a, a teacher at uh, Fuller Seminary and went through great charismatic experiences himself and went around teaching in the Western world in particular about that, you know, the church needs to be more open to the gifts of the Holy Spirit and charismatic experience needs to be part of the life of every church at every stage. Um, so th this is John Wimber, and I, 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 I don't know where you stand on these things. It's often a controversial thing. Certainly Christians should not split on this. Sadly, too often... Um, from a conservative background, charismatics have been seen as, you know, oh, I don't trust them. They're the enemy kind of thing. And, and vice versa, charismatics look at conservatives and say, oh, you're, you're so dull, you're not experiencing God at all, never the twain shall meet. Actually, charismatics and conservatives who claim Jesus Christ as Lord and want to see the world converted, we're in the same family. We are together and we should stop dividing over subsidiary issues. Um, the enemy, if you like, is not conservative or charismatic. The enemy is liberalism which is a different religion where they've said, we don't trust the Bible. We don't believe in salvation. We don't believe in heaven, hell. We don't believe in God's judgment or any of that kind of thing. We don't believe in miracles. Those are the people who are promoting a different religion. Conservatives and charismatics, particularly in Scotland today, particularly in the UK, where there's so few evangelicals, we need to get together and say, what do we share in common? Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day and he poured out his spirit to bless the church. We need to unite around these things and be busy knowing Christ and making him known, and then be happy to live with each other where there are doctrinal differences. So um, the charismatic church brought a whole new life, a whole new experience of God into churchmanship across the world, brought a whole new expectation of what God could do. And there, of course, have been miracles and healings and all of that. Though sometimes I doubt very much some of the things that are claimed to be miracles, whether they truly are. We've got to be careful. We've got to test the spirits, as Paul says, test the spirits to see whether they are of God. And balance, that wonderful word balance again is so important. Um, in some charismatic, I've heard charismatic believers who I have a lot of uh, time for say to me, you know, I'm a bit worried in my church because the live word from the Lord seems to be taking a more important place than the eternal word of the Lord. So in a sense, Bibles getting closed and people waiting for this instantaneous word from heaven or message from heaven. And sometimes serious Bible teaching getting set to one side so that there can be this open session of people coming and getting healed, of, people, of tongues being spoken, words of knowledge being spoken, and so on. That's not to denigrate the reality of charismatic gifts. God has given these gifts, and they've been operated throughout church history. But that is to say, let's get a balance here. Let's make sure that the word of the Lord is central to church life. And let's not put our belief in the Holy Spirit whether that's a very conservative one or a very charismatic one, let's not put that above our belief in the core of scripture, um, Christ, man, sin, and salvation. 
Um, so that's just a challenge for all of us. And these are controversial issues, but I, I don't want to uh, duck controversial issues. And of course, you'll know my background, where I come from, my own biases. We've got to all think about our own biases where these are concerned as well. Um, but that's just to give you an understanding of the Pentecostal and charismatic sometimes Conservative Christians conflate these two, they're different. Pentecostalism, historically, tongues is the sign of the filling of the Spirit. You, you need to wait for a second blessing. It's often called second blessing theology. A little bit like the Keswick theology. Um, Keswick theology was there's a crisis moment and you move to a higher level with the Spirit. Um, Pentecostalism would say, yes, you can be saved, but that doesn't mean you've got the fullness of the Spirit yet. Um, the baptism of the Spirit is a secondary experience that you have to wait on for power to come from you from on high. Now, personally, I reject that doctrine. I think Paul's quite clear in 1 Corinthians when he says we are all baptized in the Holy Spirit. So that word baptism of the Spirit as a one-off secondary experience after you got saved, I do not think that's valid. But I do believe that the command is to be being filled with the Spirit. And people can have some profound, even several profound experiences of the Holy Spirit where miracles and unusual manifestations from God happen. I think all of that happens. But I do think it's dangerous to say there is a second blessing that we are all waiting for. And a lot of Christians, the majority of Christians, will never experience that in this life because they're not open to it. They're, they're not expecting enough, all that kind of thing. I think that creates a lot of guilt and it creates a lot of kind of two-tier Christianity, which goes back to, you remember Gnosticism we were talking about? This is all about higher spirituality. You remember Montanism, which came with gifts of tongues and prophecies and all of that, which was interesting at the time. But of course, the Montanists went beyond the word of God in saying that these fresh words from God in our day in 100 plus AD are as important or more important than the original text of scripture. So you can see how history repeats itself. There's the danger of Pentecostal charismatic theology that the live word from God will trump the word from God in scripture. We need to judge ex the experiences of the spirit by what the word teaches and not the other way around. Um, and of course, in our generation where everybody's looking for the buzz, the excitement, adrenaline-filled Christianity, and there's something very attractive to young people about, you know, oh, you'll be able to see miracles, you'll be able to see health and wealth, you'll be able to see dramatic things of God. And sadly, I've found too many young people who have come with that kind of expectation, they've got involved in a group, and then, uh, you know, they're disappointed and they don't know how to recover from their disappointment because they've never been taught a theology of suffering or a particular a theology of when God feels far away, when God isn't answering my prayers, when God isn't doing what I want him to do, which the Psalms are full of, which Habakkuk is full of, which the New Testament is full of. You know, it's not miracle upon miracle upon miracle on every page. There are great frustrations, great suffering, often depression among the people of God that can happen while God is real and God is very much alive in our lives. So hope that makes sense. Um, Whatever you disagree with about that, may God bless you, but it's important to, to think about these issues and uh, certainly the history of Pentecostal, which has a massive impact. And the vast majority of the impact has been for good, there's no doubt about that. It's just more believers, more people will be in heaven today because of the Azusa Street Revival. Now, to completely change tack from the heights of the heavenlies and miracles and power um, to um, number two, the rise of the Nazis. We'll talk about a brick wall suddenly but of course you cannot talk about the 20th century and what the church did or did not without looking at nazism i probably don't need to rehearse the whole history here because we're very aware of it 
Um, but the Nazis sought for, in the 1930s, Germany, the Nazis sought for racial purity and glorified the German nation. So they were looking famously, of course, for this idea of the master race, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed Germans, which is quite ironic that this man in picture, Adolf Hitler, was neither blonde haired nor blue eyed. Um, in fact, he was Austrian, which was something that he became very embarrassed about. He wasn't even a German himself, but the perpetuator of more evil than we can possibly imagine. And of course, as with so many dictators, he saw the people who were um, opposing him and he basically killed them off. That's how the National Socialist Party, otherwise known as the Nazis, came to power. Um, and of course, Hitler in his message, he benefited from a, a romantic view of Germany's past. Germany had been weakened by the First World War. Um, so Hitler became, he was such a powerful speaker, a charismatic speaker. You can hear, uh, you didn't, don't need to understand Germany, just stick on a, a a speech of Hitler's, you can see the charisma of the man and these people absolutely waiting for this hero figure to come um, who would restore the dignity, the lost dignity of the German nation. And as we said, sadly, one of the texts that Hitler used was Luther's own texts of the greatness of the German nation. Remember, there was this kind of compromise as the Reformation was coming that Luther played on as much the idea of German nationalism that was developing during the Re Reformation and how the Catholic Church was opposing German nationalism. Luther liked the idea of German nationalism. Hitler took it to another level, of course, a much greater level. And Luther, towards the end of his life, wrote anti-Jewish documentation. I mean, that, that's just a fact, and we cannot deny that as Christians. It's horrific. Um, and I'm sure if Luther had known what his anti-Jewish literature would have led to um, 500 years down the line, he would never have written it. And of course, Hitler used all of that to focus on the Jews as scapegoats. He it's, it's fascinating. He focused on Jews, fascinating in a very gory way. Why Jews? Why God's people? Um, Hitler had this messianic complex about him. And I think it's safe to say, looking back historically, that we can categorize Hitler as an antichrist. You remember First John talking about not just there is the future antichrist who will be this embodiment of evil, who will come and, and make himself a god, and he will um, attack the church of Jesus Christ in bold ways. And I'm sure when Hitler come, came along, a lot of churches were thinking, here's the Antichrist, because there was so much about him attacking the people of God. But of course, 1 John says there will be a series of Antichrists, beginning with a figure called Antiochus Epiphanes, you remember, in the intertestamental period, about 180 BC. He's the one that came and attacked the Jews of Jerusalem, and he famously sacrificed a pig, the most offensive animal to Jews. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in the Jerusalem temple. You couldn't think of anything more offensive to do. That was called the abomination of desolation. And Daniel suggests, and then one John after him will suggest, there will be a series of antichrists, these incredibly evil figures that will come into the world. Nero would be another one, Antiochus would be Nero. Um, you know, some of the some of the great dictators of our age, Stalin, um, um, Idi Amin, you know, you can name them throughout history, um, people who have been ridiculously evil and have had some sort of attack on the people of God. That's exactly what Hitler did. And you don't need me to tell you the story that almost six million Jews were killed during the Holocaust. And uh, I've got to say one of the most moving, heartbreaking moments I ever had was when I was in Poland for a Christian conference. Somebody took me to Auschwitz for a day. And... Uh, 
or just the scenes there. Um, what struck me about Auschwitz was how incredibly organized it was on the one hand. I mean, there was German efficiency there with the way the trains came in and came out and how they were led down to the gas chambers. The efficiency was extraordinary. It was an incredibly well-run camp. And yet the human barbarism was just astonishing. And actually speaking to some of the, the tour guides around Auschwitz, they're allowed to be tour guides for about a month at a time. And then they have to stop. Because if you do this, to, if you tell the story too much, it gets into you and, you know, it can lead to all kinds of depression and so on, because it is so horrific. Um, you see evil in the face, the very evil that God has sworn to get rid of. Um, that is what the world discovered under this man, Hitler. And of course, Hitler's final solution, um, you know, don't know what to do with these Jews. There are lots and lots of them. The easiest way is to exterminate them. And of course, one of the hidden ideologies that came to pass um, in Nazism was a kind of an atheistic evolutionary ideology. And that's not, that's not evolution by itself, but this ideology of survival of the fittest. If you take God out of the picture, what ideology takes over? Certainly love, not love, joy, peace and patience. The ideology that takes over is survival of the fittest. Let the rich get richer, let the strong get stronger, let the weak be exterminated. And Hitler followed through on that ideology. What a dangerous ideology. And we say today, well, we're not, we're not following Hitler. You know, we've seen this beastly man and it will never happen again. What a nonsense. There's a sense in which um, the figures for abortion in our generation is a kind of ethnic cleansing. Um, choosing that you want a male child and not a female child and, and getting rid of aborting fetuses that are, that are the wrong sex for you, that are the wrong color eyes for you that are and of course anybody who is weak anybody who's disabled um i would challenge you to look on youtube some of the incredibly powerful speeches from disabled politicians when the whole issue of abortion comes up and of course there's absolute silence in the house of commons as these disabled politicians are saying basically you're wanting to get rid of me aren't you you're wanting to get rid of me i remember reading an incredible piece about Cristiano Ronaldo, who's you know one of the most famous men alive, one of the greatest footballers of all time, and the story of his mother wanting to abort him. And, uh, you know, so grateful that he wasn't aborted and so on. I mean, that is the crime of our age, but it's being accepted in middle-class society. It's being accepted as a, a reasonable thing to do. Why? Because we've lost the biblical truth that personhood begins at the moment of conception. Um, in sin did my mother conceive me. Um, your eyes saw my unformed body. Clearly, when David in Psalm 139 is talking about um, the fetus in the womb, he's thinking of absolute personhood. Here's somebody made in the image of God. And therefore, to get rid of that individual made in the image of God is it's killing. It's killing, except it's glorified killing now. There's a guy called Peter Singer, a philosopher in the States who's following the atheistic idea to its natural conclusion. You know, if we say we can kill babies up to birth. Um, because they're not useful, because they're not useful to society and because they don't fit, they, they cause too much trouble, they, they cause too much money for our health services and all that kind of stuff. That's the rationale often. Very, very, very few babies are aborted because the mother's life is in danger. There's about 2% of all abortions are because the mother's life is in danger. That's the one area where you would say, I could understand why somebody's gone down an abortion route. The vast majority is abortions of convenience, and Peter Singer has said, well, if we can kill babies up to the time when they're born, why not afterwards? And he's basically making the argument that's being accepted in some parts of American culture that uh, that a baby is not really 
contributing to society until they're about four years old. And he would argue for um, infanticide up to four years old. And the, the scary thing about this man is he's very well educated and he speaks very coolly and uh, very reasonably on one level. Um, but it's just following atheism to its level. If, if, if there's no God, then that person is not sacred. They're not made in the image of God. So we revert to the survival of the fittest ethic. And if the survival of the fittest ethic is true, let's get rid of the weak. Let's get rid of those who, who we don't want so that the, the, the powerful can prosper, um, which is just astonishing. And we were just saying, I think to, uh, my youth pastor was talking to me today and saying, you know, this outcry from the world over Ukraine now, over children being killed in Ukraine, over the unfairness and injustice of it, that does not tell you that the human race is built on survival of the fittest, does it? Not at all. The world, even the anti-God world, is furious at Putin, at the evils and the violence. And they call it evil, of course, because there is such a thing as good and evil, isn't there? Putin is demonstrating there's such a thing as good and evil. And the average man in the street in the UK is crying out for where is justice? Who's looking after the little ones? Who's looking after the innocents? The human race is not built on the ethic of survival of the fittest. We're made in the image of God with the compassion of God. And in a sense, one of the few good things that have come out of this Ukraine conflict are, are people sensing that image of God within them saying, this is right and this is wrong. This is good and this is evil. The innocents need to be protected. We need to send money to aid victims. We need to send help for refugees. Countries need to welcome in refugees. All of that, that's image of God stuff going on, not survival of the fittest. Um, and we need to keep singing that tune so that when a Hitler comes along again, and he will, and Putin has certain traits in that direction, then we need to say survival of the fittest is not the ideology we live for. Um, let's return to our Judeo-Christian values where human life is sacred and we must preserve it at all costs. Scary thing about the whole rise of Hitler was how the church responded. Um, a lot of Protestant churches, and again, we've got to put our hands up and say a lot of Protestant churches, they either looked to Hitler because they loved the message that, you know, German Christians loved the message that here is a pro-German leader who will make us strong in the eyes of the world. And they loved that so much that they were prepared to overlook the evils, the atrocities that Hitler was committing, at least in the early years. Um, so Protestant churches either looked to Hitler or they just kept quiet. They just kept quiet. They're scared scared that they would be the next victim of this dominant um, pathological leader. Um, you can understand the fear thing, um, but it, it made me think of that great quote, the only thing needed, I think, who was it said it? Was it Nelson Mandela? Or no, Martin Luther King said, the only thing needed for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing. The only thing needed for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing. That was very much at the heart of what was happening in the churches. And there were two main leaders, Martin Niemöller and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said this compliance with Hitler that was happening in a lot of Protestant churches, that is just awful. And so Niemöller and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my heroes, they set up an alternative church called the Confessing Church. And Bonhoeffer did tremendous discipleship work with young German Christians. Um, and of course, opposed Hitler and everything he was doing. And, and Bonhoeffer was very open. We need to give our lives for opposing Hitler. And Bonhoeffer was famously involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler at the, at the height of Hitler's evils called the Valkyrie plot. Tom Cruise actually acted in a, a movie presentation of this Valkyrie plot, but Bonhoeffer was part of that. 
Bonhoeffer was this outstanding evangelical pastor who stood against Hitler. And of course, because of that, he got into trouble and he ends up in Flossenburg concentration camp. And a lot of the writings that we have of Bonhoeffer today come from this time when he was in prison or a concentration camp. And, and he writes a series of letters to Christian disciples to different churches in different places saying, you know, keep strong in the faith. This is what true discipleship is all about. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the man who I think backed up C.T. Studd's original quote, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer took that literally, wholehearted, whole life discipleship. And of course, he would have to give his life um, in concentration camp. It's a very moving um, testimony of the guy who was in a room with him in, in Flossenburg concentration camp. He said, I've never seen a man who, when he got on his knees, was so sure that God was listening to every word he said. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's faith got stronger and stronger the closer he got to his execution. And of course, um, in the end, they hung him as they did so many others. Um, but he stands out now, his writings stand out now, his call to whole life discipleship stands out now because he lived it and he became a martyr, if you like, of the Nazi regime and a very godly pastor as he was going through it. And interestingly, Martin Niemöller, who became a leader with Bonhoeffer, there's a very famous scene early on when Niemöller was not standing up against Hitler and was joining in with the other church's kind of fear and you know, acquiescence to Hitler. And uh, Niemöller comes to visit Bonhoeffer in prison. And he says, he says, Dietrich, Dietrich, why are you here? Why are you here? You know, it's not worth this cost. And Bonhoeffer turns to Niemöller and says, Martin, why are you not here? Why are you not in prison? Why are you not prepared to take a stand against this evil? And uh, we need to think in our day as evangelicals, um, how much are we going to put our heads above the parapet to call evil what it truly is? We'll suffer for it, but it's what Christ calls us to um, in our age. Um, there was another great German theologian called Karl Barth, um, who called Christians away from their Nazi support, and he, uh, he, he went back to the central claims of Christianity. Martin, Karl Barth was probably the most famous theologian of the 20th century, and uh, he brought about what we call the Barman Declaration. This was in 1934, and uh, basically um, Barth hated how um, the churches became made an idol out of um, the, the German nationalism of, of, of race, of, of Hitler's power politics. And Karl Barth insisted that churches must not be influenced by their political connections. The gospel must stand over political connections. That's not to say that Christians shouldn't get involved in any way in politics um, to improve the world and all of that. We're, we're meant to do that. But the gospel must take first allegiance, not my political um, not my political viewpoints. Um, we need to think about that in Scotland today, where there's very strong views on SNP or Scottish independence. Whatever side you lie on that, don't make that your God, either in independent Scotland or not independent Scotland. Don't make that your God. We're here for the gospel. And if Scotland goes independent, it will need the gospel as much as if it stays as part of the UK. Don't let your political allegiances um, take precedence over the gospel. And over the page here, um, we then read the ugly end of Hitler. Um, Hitler famously betrays Joseph Stalin. He had promised St uh, Stalin's Russia that uh, um, that if if Russia uh, did not lift up arms against Germany, um, Germany would leave Russia alone, and uh, then Germany could freely invade Poland and so on. 
Um, but then Hitler betrayed Stalin and he invaded Russia, which was his biggest mistake. And then there was the Battle of Stalingrad. Stalingrad, of course, named after Joseph Stalin, the great Russian dictator. And um, that was the biggest bloodbath in the history of war. 19,000 deaths per day. And the fascinating thing is you have you have atheists today like Richard Dawkins saying, um, look at religion, religion's evil. Look at all the wars that religion has caused. And while that's true to a certain extent, religion has been part of wars, back to the Crusades and all of that, and some of the wars of Protestants versus Catholics and all, and so on, and the Hundred Years' War, that is true. But the 20th century and the atheists of the atheist leaders, the dictators, atheist dictators of the 20th century, have created more of a bloodbath than any other century known to man. And so this idea that atheism somehow, or humanism, somehow lifts us away from evil is just an utter nonsense. Um, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, these men killed people into the millions because they believed that human life was expendable. Why did they believe that human life was expendable? Because they believed there wasn't a God. Therefore, it was about survival of the fittest. Right. That's enough to be said about Hitler, except this final point that the killing of two world wars left any idea of humans creating utopia buried under the rubble. You might remember from the late 1700s, we were talking about the Enlightenment, you know, um, science was making progress. Humans were saying, you know, um, if we just educate each other, if we grow in our wisdom and knowledge, we don't really need a God out there. We can create a kind of heaven on earth, a bit like the Tower of Babel. You know, we'll make our own way to heaven. We'll create our own version of heaven. That idea of human utopia was lasting till the early 20th century. And then suddenly two world wars showed that um, if you leave humans to their own devices, it ends up in battlefields and bloodshed. There's got to be another answer. So that feeling of utopia was just killed by 1914 to 1918 and 1939 to 1945. Um, and we need to see that this was sin in action. This was just human evil um, uh, to an unprecedented extent. And people were starting to see as well, we use science for good. So we use science to to cure people with problems in their genetic makeup, which is incredible. We use it in medicine to an advanced extent. We save lives. We make life last longer than ever before. All of those things are wonderful advances of science, but science was also used to create the atom bomb. Science was also used for Hiroshima and Nagasaki and that horrible image that emerges from that, uh, from those wars of people literally without their skin running around, um, having faced nuclear devastation. So that was the end of the thought that, you know, we are an enlightened species now. We are, you know, humans will bring goodness to the world eventually. If only we're properly educated, um, we can bring goodness and heaven on earth. That's certainly been seen to be a lie. Just briefly, I want to mention the ecumenical movement um, before we have our coffee break. Um, you remember as we were going back to the Reformation, that before the Reformation, there was one church, the Catholic Church. Um, and then the Reformation comes along, and then there become four different kinds of Protestant churches. So you have the Catholic Church, and then you have the Lutheran Church, the Reformed Church, Anabaptists, and Anglicans. Those were the four um, Protestant denominations to emerge from then. But since the Reformation to our day, of course, denominations have started to multiply and multiply. This is another human trait that we divide, 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 uh, and often in the most conservative circles will divide over such tiny issues. I remember reading the yellow pages when I went to America looking for churches in America and Chicago, you opened the yellow pages and just the sheer number of churches, you know, um, the first Baptist church of such and such, the second Baptist church of such and such. 
the 11th Methodist Church of the 1849 Constitutional Agreement. You know, all of these ridiculous titles showed how good we are at dividing, 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 sometimes for very little reason. Um, the vast majority of denominations that have been created have not been created because people have stopped believing Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. But um, different emphases as we have gone, and that's what creates denominations. It's not the Holy Spirit who creates the denominations. It's uh, human sin that creates denominations. But that's where we were. And so this idea of ecumenism, churches coming together, from the outside, it seems a very good idea. There needs to be some unity. And the world needs to see that the church is united. But how do we go about doing that? Um, so in, in the mid-1900s, um, there was this desire for some form of unity among diverse churches. And the World Council of Churches was formed in 1948. Of course, just a few years after the war, after the war had brought such devastation. And there was this thought of, you know, mankind is better than this. And of course, the church looked and said, how do we make sure that we are united enough so that these kind of divisions that lead to horrific atrocities don't happen again? So here's a picture of what well, you can see. There's the Pope there, um, probably some kind of Presbyterian minister to his left. Um, and then you have Greek Orthodox ministers, Russian Orthodox ministers, all of that kind of thing. And there was this wor uh, World Council of Churches formed in Amsterdam, 1948, including Catholics, Evangelicals and Russian Orthodox. And there was a famous international missionary conference that took place in Edinburgh, of all places, 1910. Very famous conference. Um, Scotland, of course, have sent more missionaries per head of population across the world than any other nation on Earth. Um, that's a wonderful thing. Um, and the aim of the 1910 World Council of Churches meeting um, in Edinburgh was, can we reach the whole world with the gospel in the next 100 years, which sounded wonderful. Um, the problem is, how do you define the gospel? And uh, a lot of ecum ecumenical people who did not believe in the what we would call the raw, rugged gospel of Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again. There's a heaven, there's a hell, and there's only one way to heaven which is core biblical faith. A lot of um, people in the ecumenical movement didn't want to hold to that. And of course, if they did hold to that, they'd become very offensive to society. And so a lot of ecumenism began to be a very woolly about doctrine. Doctrine divides people and became known for their politics, became known for their ethics. They wanted to change things in the ethical arena, which was good. They wanted to bring Christian values into the ethical arena. There's no point bringing Christian values into the ethical arena, into the culture, if we've forgotten the gospel that saves people. But it's easier to do that. We will be respected. We will be loved by those if we're just known for compassion and gentleness and goodness and, uh, and wanting the downtrodden to be looked after. You know, they're not going to hate us for that. They're going to hate us for saying there is only one way to heaven, and that way is Jesus Christ. And so, of course, evangelicals within this united group of churches began to feel more and more uncomfortable, and rightly so. Point D here says evangelicals struggled to unite with other Christian denominations that did not accept core things that I think you just need to accept to call yourself a Christian. Biblical inerrancy, this idea that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. Once you start to lose inerrancy, then anything goes. You can say, well, I'm not sure that all the Bible is equally authoritative. You start to say, well, which parts are more authoritative than others? I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, I don't believe it's authoritative that Israel was in Egypt, for example. And people say, well, that won't mess with your faith too much. What if you then say, well, I don't think that the, when the Bible talks about the resurrection, I don't think it, it, that really happened. That was just some kind of spiritual metaphor. That's what a lot of so-called Christians began to say. If you lose the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, you then make Scripture say whatever you want it to say. 
and you reject the bits you don't like, especially the bits that don't play well with culture. That's what the liberals were doing. Let's get rid of miracles. Let's get rid of the exclusivity of Christ. Let's get rid of any idea of, of the final judgment or God judging people and sending people to hell. Those are the things that go when you lose biblical inerrancy so that you become still well accepted in the culture. Um, Christianity has always been at its best when it's been on the margins of the culture, calling people out of the world to come and know Christ and, and walk the narrow road to glory. As soon as Christianity or Christians have sought to become popular in the culture and sought to be at the heart of mainstream debate and mainstream ideas, then they inevitably compromise on the gospel um, because the world doesn't like the fact that there is only one way to God. So um, evangelicals, they struggled on biblical inerrancy. Um, and so um, the Evangelical Alliance formed in 1846. 50 evangelical bodies in nine different countries brought the Evangelical Alliance together. Now, this was an alliance that was a more happy one because um, evangelicals gathered under, I don't know if I told you about the Bebbington Quadrilateral, um, which sounds rather grand, but a man called David Bebbington um, put together a definition of what it means to be evangelical, which is very helpful. A quadrilateral, there are four points to it. And those four points, if I can remember, one is Biblicism, that we believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Number two is conversionism. We believe that people are born in sin and need to have a moment of conversion to pass from death to life where they, they are sinners and then they repent of their sins and they receive salvation. They need to go through that conversion event. So biblicist, conversionist, um, crucicentrist was the other one. We are cross-centered people. The cross is the centerpiece of God's work of redemption. We must come to the cross and confess our sins and believe that he died and rose again. That is the great act of salvation at the center of evangelical belief. And then activism. It's not enough just to believe Christ died for our sins and all of that. We need to go out actively and change the world, both through social action, improving people's lot in life and being good news to the the community, and also preaching this gospel in a missionary sense, calling people to faith in Jesus Christ, activism. So those are the four de uh, four parts to the definition of evangelicalism. And so the Evangelical Alliance began, but of course, Evangelical Alliance has seen problems as well, as, as evangelicals are always faced with this issue, will we compromise when, when culture is is clashing with our views of the authority of the Bible, will we compromise that? And lots of evangelicals had, and they've become non-evangelicals as a result. Famously, back in the 1850s, the great um, Baptist preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, he broke off from the Baptist Union and he broke off from the, the Evangelical Alliance because a lot of evangelicals in his day were saying, no, the Bible is not inerrant. And he says, you must hold to this or else you cannot be evangelical. So he split off and Spurgeon's church became the largest single non-denominational church in the world actually at the time um, in what was called the downgrade controversy as people who claimed to be evangelicals were downgrading the bible they were downgrading the um the radical exclusive aspects of christianity anyway i hope you recognize these two faces on the screen now on the left is john stott and on the right is uh, billy graham um to my mind i mean these are two of my heroes and uh, to my mind, the two most influential godly leaders of the 20th century, and we owe them a debt that we that we barely even recognize. John Stott on the left is um, your kind of um, articulate biblical scholar, 
Um, he was a pastor at All Souls Church in Langham Place for most of the 20th century. Um, and yet he traveled around the world, um, traveled to Africa, in particular South America, often teaching and training pastors um, in areas of, that were greatly economically deprived. And he's left behind him a whole um, network called Langham Scholarship, which still to this day encourages um, poorer third world or majority world pastors to get good theological training. Um, they, they're um, given scholarships to come over to the West to get good theological training with the promise that they'll go back to their home countries, hometowns, and they will bring the gospel to their own areas. So that's John Stott on the left. Um, one of the finest Bible teachers, and, and he is still the best commentary writer I've ever seen. When you when you read John Stott on something, you think there's nothing else to say. He's, he's been so thorough and so clear. He has covered it, and a man who who bleeds the Bible. And on the right, of course, the great, the late great Reverend Billy Graham. Um, so if if Stott on the left is your your teacher figure, um, Graham on your right is your evangelist figure, and the two of them were close friends, and I think it was their godliness that was part of their close friendship. And in fact, um, if Stott had not passed away before Billy Graham, Billy Graham had wanted to wanted John Stott to take his funeral. That's how close the two men were, um, and they're very important for how we understand mid to late twentieth century in the West, in particular. Billy Graham was a Youth for Christ evangelist, a fiery evangelist, um, but he was also an evangelist during the ages of massive technological increases where, you know, video and television could take you to various parts of the world. There were huge stadia now being built across the world for football and concerts and all of this kind of thing. And Billy Graham um, developed an organization along with uh, a singer called George Beverly Shea and uh, and tremendous administrators. And Billy Graham was such a man of integrity that he was welcomed in almost every arena in every part of the world. Billy Graham still holds um, the record crowds for places like Madison Square Garden in New York, some of the biggest venues in the world. He has um, sold out, if I could put it that way, though he never charged for his rallies. But Billy Graham brought, brought the gospel to more people in the 20th century than any other individual um, in the history of the church, I think it's fair to say. There are incredible pictures um, in a book about his life uh, in Seoul, Korea, where the, the, the panoramic camera can't even take in the number of people. There were over a million people in attendance listening to Billy Graham preach. Um, and what he preached was incredibly simple gospel. This was it. There was nothing new, nothing novel. He preached, um, John 3.16 was his favorite text to preach. God so loved the world that he gave his only son kept on preaching about our need as a human people. We have sinned against God, but God loves us. Christ died for our sins. And you hear this again and again, night after night. And remember the first time I ever heard Billy Graham, I, I kind of wondered, what's the fuss all about? This man traveling the world in sold out arenas. Um, and yet this gospel is so simple. But that was the anointing. It was a man who preached a simple, direct, clear gospel and loved people and had a massive integrity about him. This was the thing. Um, my father-in-law worked for Billy Graham for several years and uh, knew the rules of the group. So for example, you know, Billy Graham became more popular than some American presidents and he was often close confidence of presidents um, all the way down. And uh, he would often be the one to pray at the presidential, um, at the launch of the new presidency and so on. And they outlived a lot of the presidents, of course, as well. But he was that respected. He was like the evangelical pope. Some people called him that, the leading figure of the evangelical Christianity. But of course, if, 
if media and journalists wanted to catch him out, this was the guy to catch. And uh, he had a rule, for example, that when he was going back to a hotel room, if he was on some kind of rally somewhere in some part of the world, he would make sure that um, an assistant came with him and would go into the hotel room first, just in case, as happened several times, there was some prostitute that had been placed there in the bedroom with a um, a cameraman waiting to take a shot of the great evangelist. They tried to trap him, but he was brilliant at not only personal integrity, nobody ever caught him for anything over all the years and all the public camera and lighting on him. Um, nobody ever caught him for any um, illicit act and, uh, and just wisdom, wisdom, wisdom and humility. Um, you know, they would say he would come to a new country and rather than trying to impose an American evangelist style on that new country. He would listen to the leaders of the local country to their needs. And uh, he was a servant. Remember Gregory the Great in the 600s, the, that Pope who was called the servant of the servants of God. There was a lot of that in Billy Graham. In fact, what united these two men, um, Stott and Graham, was humility. Godliness clothed in humility. It's a beautiful trait. And God used these men powerfully, powerfully. Billy Graham on the evangelistic side, preaching and bringing more people to Jesus Christ than any other individual in the 20th century. And then John Stott, who was there to mature the church, to build the church and traveled widely, India, Africa, South America, teaching, preaching, encouraging young pastors to mature in their preaching and teaching so that um, the church would not be a mile wide and an inch deep, but it would grow deeper and deeper and deeper. And the legacy of these two men is still continuing. Um, and of course, John Stott and Billy Graham were interested in unity. You cannot be a Christian who's not interested in unity, but if the ecumenical movement is not the way to unity because you, you downplay truth, then what is the way to unity? You must fight for this unity. And they had a, a famous gathering called the Lausanne Conference in Switzerland in 1974, where Billy Graham and John Stott, these great leaders, invited evangelical leaders from all across the world from south america north america africa and so on the biggest gathering of evangelical leaders um, ever in lausanne switzerland and they ended up with the lausanne declaration which basically said um you know we are wanting to defend the core evangelical tenets of um, biblical inerrancy and the need for the world to hear the gospel um but we cannot just preach the gospel we need to be good news as well as preach good news this is what came out of lausanne in fact in the first few days of the Lausanne conference, there were some South American ministers in particular who were getting very frustrated because there was a very westernized, slightly capitalist version of Christianity that was being preached from the platform. And the South American leaders came and said, we don't like this because we come from very poor, impoverished churches. And we cannot just talk about pure evangelism, just talk about John 3.16 without saying, how do we help the poor? How do we help the needs of the poor? And so the statement that the heads of Lausanne were going to write, which was very evangelical, um, had a social action piece added on that John Stott himself wrote, basically calling believers in the West to live simply. And that is something we have failed to do, to live simply. The dream in America and the rest of the West is... Let's make as much money as we can. Let's head to the suburbs. Let's live our, you know, isolated little lives with all the conveniences and comforts all around us. John Stott says we cannot possibly win the world if we live like that. We need to live simply and then give away extraordinary amounts of money for the sake of the gospel. And that's how 
a South American Christian or an African Christian who listens in to an American evangelist on American TV, that's how he will really listen to the message of the gospel. He's not listening at the minute because there's so much money in American gospel, in British gospel, there's so much money, there's so much wealth, there's so much greed and hypocrisy. You can't listen to the gospel coming from the lips of someone who is, you know, greedy and wealthy and not prepared to live simply. John Stott um, wrote books that were bestsellers. I mean, his basic Christianity book, um, over 3 million copies were sold. All of the proceeds of his books go into gospel work. He himself lived as a single man in just a tiny unit, not even a flat in um, All Souls Lying Place in London. Um, it was a little annex attached to a flat. That's where he lived all his days. This man who could have traveled the world, um, um, an Oxford dawn, a uh, man of high, high intelligence, high, high intellect, who was blessing the church across the world. He lived simply. And uh, I look at my house today, um, two cars, um, you know, an electronic garage door and thinking, um, what, have I, what have I done? Um, what are suburbs all about? You know, kind of let's escape from the needs of the world, the crying needs of the urban poor. Let's retreat to our leafy suburbs and live out a comfortable existence while claiming to worship God. Um, that's not good enough. We cannot reach the world for Christ, even if we get the message of the gospel across with great modern technology, as Billy Graham did. We cannot get that if that message is hollow because we're not living a gospel centered, sacrificial lifestyle that's more prepared to give than it is to receive. So there's a challenge for us all, myself included. Um, just to move on a little bit from Billy Graham and John Stott, another great 20th century evangelical figure is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. And of course, a little bit like Paul's journey of life was set up from, you know, Paul, this zealous Jewish theologian, um, who gets saved by grace when he was going to a, in a good works direction, gets saved by grace, and then the very mode of his conversion then becomes, leads into his powerful ministry. He, he then brings the gospel of salvation by grace to lost people because he's experienced in his own heart. C.S. Lewis, in the same way, came from a very educated, academic, atheistic background. And so his coming to faith meant that he was able to speak into an atheistic um, an atheistic academic world. And this is what he did magnificently. And of course, he's most famous for his Narnia novels, where he brought the message of Christianity through books that children could read. I remember us in primary five uh, in school in Northern Ireland, uh, my teacher, Mrs. Bell, for the last 15 minutes of every day, would read through um, one, uh, you know, a few paragraphs from C.S. Lewis, The Magician's Nephew, or The Last Battle, or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And uh, of course, I was sitting with my son a little while ago and we were watching The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe when Aslan is taken by the Wicked Queen and Aslan gives his life for Edmund. So there's substitutionary atonement and you see, um, you know, the, the servants of the Wicked Queen putting Aslan to death and cheering. You know, this is the crucifixion. And of course, they put him to death over the stone table with the stone tablets, which are symbolic of the Ten Commandments, you know, that. Christ's death has broken the curse of the law, so we don't have to keep the law anymore. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. And then, of course, as everybody's mourning the death of Aslan, he comes back to life again and wins a great victory over the Ice Queen. And he was the genius of C.S. Lewis that he brought 
Christianity in this literary, popular level way through regular um, through regular doors um, into regular people's lives. And uh, his influence was massive. These were best-selling books, which of course have been turned into movies as well. He was also known for some of his great Christian books, you know, pure Christian books that weren't <clears throat> that weren't narrative in any sense. And his most famous was Mere Christianity. And in fact, um, there's a man called Kent Hughes, a pastor in America, who wrote this book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. And as part of that book, he wrote round a hundred of the leading evangelical leaders in his net network and asked them for their top 10 books. What what books have most influenced you in your life? And the book that occurred most frequently in that list of top 10 books from these evangelical leaders that shaped them was C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. It was either first or second in the vast majority of these leaders' books. That's a book you have to read, um, which gave a logical, apologetic defense of Christianity. Um, C.S. Lewis talked a lot about the moral law. Why is there morality living within us? Why do we sense the difference between right and wrong? Um, if we were just kind of glorified animals, we wouldn't have the sense of right and wrong. That sense of right and wrong has been given to us by the moral author of the universe, who is God. And he just had a brilliant way. Uh, he's a he's a quote fest. In fact, I I quote C.S. Lewis far too much in my preaching, probably. Um, but he is such a genius way of explaining Christianity in a way that makes sense to atheists, to secular people, and brings the reality of, of Christianity um, through their front doors. And, and the challenge of a life like C.S. Lewis is... Um, what are we doing in our day to make the gospel accessible? Are we keeping the gospel within our four walls? Um, we could say, no, we're, we're moving out. We're trying to do all kinds of things. We're trying to put on courses. We're trying to give out Bibles, all that kind of stuff. The next question we need to ask is, are we meeting people where they are? And probably today, um, the biblical illiteracy in our generation is greater than ever. How do we get the stories of the Bible back into public consciousness? How do we get it in a way that the average person in Aberdeen will pick up and enjoy and think about? This is what C.S. Lewis did. This was a genius. He took totally secular people and made them interested in the Christian story. How do we do that? Um, how do we meet non-Christians where they're at? Don't expect them to come to church. Meet them in a coffee shop, meet them in a pub, meet them in places where they're comfortable and speak to them in a language that they relate to. Whether that's, you know, men gathering together for a curry night in a sports quiz that has Jesus at the end of it. Um, whatever you do, we need to be thinking today about ways in which the eternal gospel, which doesn't change, Christ died for our sins, rose again, and we need to repent and believe in the gospel. That eternal message needs to be packaged in a different way by each generation. What's the way to package it for 21st century people? Have we thought of that? where people don't have the first clue. Um, our youth pastor and, and uh, another youth worker in our church went into Mill Timber Primary School this last week um, for a thing called Bible Alive. They were amazed that the school opened itself. P5, P6, P7 were going through this Bible Alive thing all day Friday, and the kids loved it. And the two things that um, my youth pastor said was, number one, the reception that they got was fantastic, and number two, the kids knew absolutely nothing, barely know what the name Jesus is. Um, so we've got to think of ways to invade the culture with the truth of Jesus, as C.S. Lewis did through his Narnia novels. Now, um, going on to point four here, this is a huge point and we're nearly at the end. Um, the Christianity has, has moved. Um, in a sense, Christianity has done its world tour, if I can put it that way. Let's remember that um, Christianity, the whole Christian ethos, begins in the East. Um, 
the Old Testament. It's a very Eastern setting. Um, Jerusalem, um, Canaan, promised land, um, Ur of the Chaldees that Abraham moved from, Babylon, Assyria, all of these things are Eastern. And the whole thought processes of the Old Testament are Eastern. Then, of course, um, Jerusalem, Christ comes, dies, rises again. The disciples start spreading the word and they start spreading it west a lot. I mean, they go to India and China and all of that as well. But they start, they go through Asia, they go into Europe. And of course, when Constantine becomes the head of the Roman Empire, the West then becomes Christianized and churches become the thing to go to and all of that stuff that we've been learning through church history. So it's covered east to west, but largely northern hemisphere throughout Christianity's history until about 1900. For the last hundred years, the majority of Christians have been in what we call the global south, which is just fascinating. Christianity is doing its world tour. Dare I say, Christianity is coming to the end of its world tour. Remember um, Matthew's gospel saying the gospel will reach the ends of the earth and then the end will come. So we are waiting as Christians for the gospel to be available to every tribe, tongue, nation and language. And we could almost say it's there. Um, certainly the gospel is available even through satellite TV and internet and all that kind of stuff to just about every soul on the planet if they want to listen. Um, but now the global south is where the majority of Christians are. Um, so um, I've said here more people have become Christians in the last 100 years than at any other previous time. We need to remember that, particularly in the West, where you know churches are in decline. You look at Scotland today, you look at Western Europe in particular, and you think, well, churches are emptying. This is a bad day for Christianity. That's nonsense. It's only a bad day for Christianity in Western Europe, which has had Christianity for about 2000 years. It's known Christendom. It's had its day. Now, the places that are alive with the gospel are South America, large swathes of Africa, China and so on. And millions upon millions coming to the faith and Christianity is still the fastest growing people movement in the world. People think Islam is. That's just not the case. It's just a lot of the conversions that are happening are happening in the, in, in the global south, are happening largely among poor people that don't hit the news. There's an awful lot of conversions over the last 20 years in intensely Muslim countries as well, where people are literally dying for their faith. But, um, you know, people movements, there's a book I read recently about um, a wind blowing through the House of Islam, this whole idea of, you know, all the 1.6 billion people who would call themselves Muslims today. It's looking at all of these Muslim people groups and then saying, here's where revival's happening. And they would say a revival in a Muslim situation is where more than a thousand people in a particular people group have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the number of those people movements is extraordinary, but it'll never hit the news. Certainly the Islamic states won't let it hit the news. And, uh, you know, Western journalism isn't particularly interested in that kind of stuff, but it's happening. Christianity is expanding more rapidly over the last century than any other time in human history. And the missions of the 1800s and 1900s have brought explosive, explosive, explosive Christian growth to Latin America, Africa, and most recently China. The China story is thrilling, actually. Time magazine um, had a whole center spread a couple of years back on the growth of Christianity in China. The Communist Party in China would be worth about 70 million members. They would say that Christianity in China, now Catholics and Protestants together, so a whole range of Christianities, if I can put it that way, but they count for about 100 million people. And so in large areas of China, the government is bringing a crackdown now to stop churches flourishing. And maybe your church has experienced Chinese students coming across um, wanting to learn about West and Western values because China wants to become the superpower. 
and they want to gain all the economic knowledge and industrial knowledge of the West. So send their students out to the Western universities, get the best education they can, and then come back to China and use that to build up China. While that is happening, of course, a lot of these Chinese students are hearing the gospel and coming to faith and going back to China and starting house churches. I mean, there was a guy who came to D-side, um, very, very meek kind of guy, very quiet kind of guy. In fact, I barely thought he was a Christian, but he got baptized when he was with us and uh, went back to a certain area of China. And last I heard, he had started his own house church. This guy who wouldn't say boo to a goose had started his own house church in China. That's just the expectation now. And the church is growing like, like wildfire in the midst of persecution. Um, but here is how Christianity has moved. In 1900, 10% of world Christians were in the global south. So 90% were in the north. Uh, but today, 70% of all the world's Christians are in the global south. Um, now, we've got to take these, um, these um, percentages as Christianities rather than, you know, it's not all necessarily born again, Bible believing evangelical Christians, but 40% of Africa is officially Christian, nominally at least. That's 360 million people out of 790 million. And you can see it, you know, um, the, in the UK, the reason why evangelicals are holding their own at about 2% of the population is largely because of African immigrants who are leading African churches. Those are the ones, you know, coming from Africa who are keeping um, the evangelical figures in the UK high and who are involved in outreach and giving, you know, the financial giving of some African churches is just extraordinary. But there's a sign as well that, you know, Christianity has moved. The powerhouse of Christianity now are when you hear an African Anglican bishop talk about the complete compromise and nonsense ethics of some of the Western Anglican bishops, you realize um, that Christianity in Africa is much stronger than it is here. Global South Christianity is largely Pentecostal, as we've said, and charismatic. More than one in four believers today would be in the Pentecostal charismatic movement, um, largely because, and this is the other interesting thing, the whole idea of power encounters, miracles, um, those are being seen more in poorer spiritual conflict areas where there's animism or witch doctors or that kind of thing a lot of those power encounters are being seen more in the global south than they are in the western world i've said down here at the bottom of the page the western mindset tries to explain away demons and exorcisms that's why we don't see very much of that stuff here it doesn't mean it doesn't exist it doesn't mean that god's power is not moving you remember in the new testament of course while Paul is able to do all his miracles in Ephesus, where there's great spiritual warfare and people are throwing away their magic books and all of that, where there's great overt spiritual conflict, God does his miracles and people have to touch Paul's handkerchief and they're healed. Whereas when Trophimus is sick in Miletus, Paul doesn't heal him, can't heal him. Um, God shows his power at different places in different ways, depending on the cultural context. So, um, these power encounters, if you hear about one of these power encounters in, in an African village somewhere, don't doubt it. Don't doubt it. There's no cessationists in Africa, I can tell you. I heard some, you know, very conservative brethren Christians who were cessationists. The idea that, you know, um, God doesn't work miracles today. That was just in the early church. And, uh, you know, God's power of healing and all that kind of stuff. That was just for the first generation as the church was getting set off. Now there are no miracles you go to some parts of Africa and Latin America and you'd get laughed out of camp by people there who've just seen too many miracles to deny them. 
And in fact, uh, there's an excellent two-volume academic text called, uh, by a man called Craig Keener, who's one of the best evangelical scholars of our day, a Pentecostal guy. Um, and two volumes, a thousand pages worth. And the book, the, the two volumes are called just Miracles. And Craig Keener just itemizes in an academic way all the testimonies and stories from all parts of the world about miracles, just thousands of them from every corner of the globe. Um, as a testimony to the fact that God is powerful and his power is still being shown on earth in amazing ways. Just because I don't necessarily see them every week at D-side doesn't mean he's not doing it. Um, but of course, I can't manipulate that or say, you know, I'll, you know, pray to God. and He's going to start doing some of the stuff at D-side on Sunday morning. Um, that's not what we're talking about here. What we are talking about is um, God works differently in different parts of the world, depending on the spiritual background of a lot of those people. But we continue to pray with sky high expectations that God will move his hand in the West again. And he might show his mighty hand at work in an undeniable way so that people will say that there is a God. We need to keep praying for that, praying for God to show, to, to do miracles, acknowledging, of course, that the greatest miracle that he ever does is to bring someone from death to life. Conversion is still the greatest miracle that God does. You heal the body, it will die again. You heal the soul, it will never die. The power of a healed soul is the greatest power on offer today. And we pray that God would move his hand again among us, even in the West. Very interestingly, as we turn the page here, page six, our final page. I'm sorry, I hadn't even mentioned this average annual population growth thing, Christian average annual growth. This is just on, on a graph here. Um, the impact how Christianity has grown. So you see Europe on the far left, um, it's grown the smallest Christian-wise. Africa and Asia have grown the largest. So that's just to show the, the movement in our generation from about 1900s um, that, that um, Christianity has moved to the global south. And of course, missionaries, you know, we sent missionaries out from the UK um, late 1800s, early 1900s. They went lots of the places that they went to um, villages, towns, whole cultures were converted. And then those churches sent missionaries back to us. We need missionaries sent back to us. The number of African missionaries in London, for example, folks that have been sent back from places where the gospel went. And now they say, well, the most needy place is the UK. The most needy place is Western Europe. Let's send missionaries back. Praise the Lord that that's happening. We need missionaries sent back to us because Christianity, while it's on the way in here, is booming elsewhere. Um, but on to page six now, um, as we finish off here, uh, just mentioned in this point four here where we've, we've talked about um, Christianity going to the global south, power encounters happening, and all of that kind of thing, that in southern Christianity, if I can put it that way, just destroying the power of the devil is often a more important theme to southern believers than Jesus being our substitute to die for our sin. You see, now both are true, of course. Jesus has conquered the devil through the cross, and Jesus has died as our substitute to save us from sin. Both of those are true, but which is emphasized more depends on the, the people's experience of Christianity. In the very independent West, where we are today, where it's all about what you know, my personal savior, my personal salvation, we're liable to go for this, to emphasize this idea of justification by faith that an individual sinner is saved individually by Christ's imputed righteousness, by Christ's substitutionary death on my personal account. Whereas if you're in the global south and the way the gospel has come to you is by seeing some dramatic power encounter where God overcomes sickness, disease, whatever, then you are more liable to think of Jesus as a savior in the sense of that he defeats the devil. 
which he's done both, of course. Now, you need to be careful in the global south that a lot of those Christians who are, let's say, experiencing power encounters and therefore build a version of Christianity on kind of adrenaline-filled Christianity, power encounter Christianity, they need to be taught that Christ died as a substitute for our sin. They need to be taught about you know, personal repentance and faith and the rugged road of discipleship and not just in a sense, wait for the next power encounter. And for us in the North, the opposite is true. We who believe in this kind of personal, quiet salvation where I have peace with my Savior and so on, I need to raise my expectations of the power of God as I see Satan building his throne in Aberdeen. I don't just sit back and take that. I say, Lord, move your hand destroy the purposes of Satan. We have folks in Deeside, for example, working in Tilly Drone at the minute with drug addicts and drug addicts coming to Bible studies and they're just held captive by these forces of evil. And we need to pray that God in miraculous power will release these men and women from the things that bind them so that they will come to see Jesus Christ personally. So Jesus is both our substitute. Um, he died for our sins and we repent and personally receive him as savior but he also has the power to overthrow the devil. Both are true at the same time. Um, and we emphasize one or the other, depending on our experience. What time are we now? We are one minute to go. So just to finish off here, this last point here, the West has descended into post-Christian secularism. Aren't we aware of it? What are the big issues of our day that we need to be aware of that conflict with um, proper Christian discipleship? Well, here's one big one that we no is there, but we don't know how it impacts us. I shop, therefore I am. Consumerism has taken over the West, you know, shopping malls. That is our God today. Um, I remember John Merson, my co-pastor, showing two pictures of London. London in the 1900s, where the tallest building was St. Paul's Cathedral, built to the glory of God by Sir Christopher Wren. Then the same picture of London, same area of London, 100 years later, and the tallest buildings by far are the big tower blocks of Canary Wharf the business district, money. Money is our God. And we will not um, bring the gospel powerfully to men and women today until they see that money has stopped being our God in the church, that um, the idol of money has been crushed. I shop, therefore I am. Um, we judge each other according to our material possessions and not according to our souls. And while that remains the truth in the church, we will always be a church that's hindered and there will be no power in our gospel. We need to crush into dust the idols that are holding us back from living godly lives in Christ Jesus and therefore being able to preach with power an authentic gospel message. Of course, we're living in an age as well with the moral ethics of Christianity where movements and governments are actively restricting the influence of Christianity. So in a sense, we're we're going back into paganism. We're seeing the signs now. Christianity emerged in pagan Rome where Christianity was, was hated and persecuted by the government because its ethics, you remember, were totally against the Roman Empire ethics, all the gods of the Roman Empire. Same today. We are now moving more and more into a pagan setup where um, issues of sexuality and gender are up in the air. The moral values of Judeo-Christian ethics, they've gone out the window. How do we keep our Christian faith and keep our faith um, while, um, while the government are opposing us. Remember that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Whenever the church is persecuted, it grows. So maybe God's going to take us into a time of persecution so that he can purify his church and the church can grow in that way.
Um, and of course, science is another god. Science bringing natural explanations to dismiss supernatural categories. I mean, how, how often have you heard that? The average Scot today says, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. As though science has got rid of the miraculous and science is going to lead us to utopia. It's utter nonsense. Christians need to be interested in science, of course. It's very important. Um, but um, the idea that science has got rid of the need for God is nonsense. And we need to um, show by our faith, the supernatural power of God again. And to finish off your point four, technology is creating a global culture, don't we know? We're going to finish with the iPhone. <laughs> we started with the uh, with uh, the birth of Jesus in 180. We finished with the iPhone. That's where we are today. And of course, our young people getting impacted by a global village. There's lots of good on the internet and in our technology, but so much evil. And one of the top reasons why young committed Christians particularly male committed Christians are being hamstrung and ineffective as Christian leaders and scared to be leaders in the church is because of pornography. Pornography is the biggest single issue that is preventing Christian men in particular, but also women as well, from being all that they can be for Jesus Christ. It's so accessible now. It's so easy. And the amount of Christians that not just watch pornography, but are addicted to it um, is one of the huge problems in the church. And there are some godly, godly guys who uh, picked up an iPhone when they were too young, didn't know what to do with it. And before they knew it, by the time they're 13, 14 years old, they're looking at images and they can't stop looking at images. That's going to be one of the big issues that the church needs to deal with. Talk openly about sexuality, talk openly about pornography and the damage that it does and help young men deal with guilt and then help them to defeat that particular sin um, so that they get rid of the guilt that hinders them from being leaders of the church of Jesus Christ and then helping them to, to crush that sin and help younger, younger people do that as well. As parents, we need to be switched on, um, switched on to parental blockers on phones and iPads and all of this. We need to limit our kids' time on the screen in a very pupil-centered generation where, you know, what the child says he wants goes. I mean, like, what utter nonsense. Parents need to have the authority in the home to say, you're not watching that, you're not doing that, and let me help you um, tread a path through the moral quagmire of Western, um, of Western consumerism, of Western sexual confusion, and of just outright pornography and evil. That is one click away, one click away. I need to watch myself of these things, I'm 50. What about 12, 13, 14-year-olds whose whole life and identity is wrapped up in who liked me on Facebook, who's following me on Twitter? What picture am I going to put up on myself? What pictures am I going to look at on Instagram tonight? Church needs to be aware of that and teaching into it in our generation. It is five past nine. I have one past my time. Thank you so much for your listening. We are done now. Um, so appreciate all your attention. And let me just close us in prayer now and praying for you and um, your family, your loved ones, the churches that you represent, um, that we will learn the lessons of the history of Christianity, which is continuing. We are Acts 29. We're here to take the gospel that the first apostles brought. Let's take it with power, with relevance, and with a belief in a God who can do more than all we ask or imagine. Father, I pray that you would uh, move among us, that we would see your hand at work in our day. Thank you that we began. Uh, today by thinking about Pentecostalism and the power of God moving in the beginning of the 20th century. Father, we, may we see the hand of God move again in our day. May we have sky expe high expectations of what you can do. May we live holy and godly lives in a generation full of confusion 
and uh, moral relativity and uh, making a God out of science, Father. May we show that the God of scriptures is alive today and he's living in us and through us and through our churches and help us as churches to take this eternal gospel and package it in a way that that the average man and woman who is clueless today walking up Union Street, who's clueless about anything to do with the Bible, help us to package it in such a way that we can communicate to them in a language they understand so that more and more men and women in our generation come to know Christ. Thank you, Father, for this time and for all the folks that are listening and pray that you will bless them in every way and uh, that you would move your hand once again in this nation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.